0: Welcome to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We're very glad to finally be able to bring you a Hemingway short story, this just becoming available in public domain on January 1 of this year. I promise there'll be more to follow in the coming months and years. My Old Man was published in Hemingway's 1923 book, Three Stories and Ten Poems, first in Paris, then later included in his following collection of stories called In Our Time, published in New York in 1925 by Bonnie and Liveright. Hemingway and his wife Hadley lived in Paris, where he was foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star from 1922 until Hadley became pregnant in 1923, and at that point they returned to Toronto. During his absence, Bill Byrd's Parisian Three Mountains Press published a small collection of Hemingway's work, the previously mentioned Three Stories and Ten Poems, which included... My Old Man. During the great suitcase debacle of the previous year, when a suitcase containing all of Hemingway's manuscripts was stolen from Hadley at a Paris train station, My Old Man was one of two stories to survive because it was in the post to editors already. This short story was possibly the first he ever wrote. And I wonder if that suitcase ever turned up. The story tells of a boy named Joe whose father is a steeplechase jockey, very dangerous work, and is narrated from Joe's point of view, looking back upon their lives together in Europe as he followed his dad from the tracks in Italy to those near Paris. Joe has to grow up fast, realizing that his father, whom he idolized, isn't perfect and that the business of racing is crooked. The story's importance lies in advancing the themes of American expatriates in post-World War I Europe. Weak or toppled fathers, social corruption, and innocence betrayed. World War I had robbed millions of innocents, and it would be a long time before many people would see life differently. And now, My Old Man, by Ernest Hemingway. MY OLD MAN by Ernest Hemingway I guess looking at it now my old man was cut out for a fat guy one of those regular little roly fat guys you see around but he sure never got that way except a little toward the last and then it wasn't his fault he was riding over the jumps only and he could afford to carry plenty of weight then I remember the way he'd pull on a rubber shirt over a couple of jerseys and a big sweatshirt over that "'and get me to run with him in the forenoon in the hot sun. "'He'd have, maybe, taken a trial trip "'with one of the Razzo's skins early in the morning "'after just getting in from Torino at four o'clock in the morning "'and beating it out to the stables in a cab. "'And then with the dew all over everything "'and the sun just starting to get going. "'I'd help him pull off his boots, "'and he'd get into a pair of sneakers and all those sweaters, "'and we'd start out. "'Come on, kid,' he'd say stepping up and down on his toes in front of the jock's dressing room. Let's get moving. Then we'd start off jogging around the infield once, maybe with him ahead, running nice, and then turn out the gate and along one of those roads with all the trees along both sides of them that run out from San Siro. I'd go ahead of him when we hit the road, and I could run pretty stout, and I'd look around and he'd be jogging easy just behind me. And after a little while I'd look around again, and he'd begun to sweat. Sweatin' heavy, and he'd just be doggin' it along with his eyes on my back. But when he'd catch me lookin' at him, he'd grin and say, Sweatin' plenty? When my old man grinned, nobody could help but grin too. We'd keep right on running out toward the mountains, and then my old man would yell, Hey, Joe! And I'd look back, and he'd be sitting under a tree with a towel that he'd had around his waist, wrapped around his neck. I'd come back and sit down beside him, "'and he'd pull a rope out of his pocket "'and start skipping dust with the rope going "'cloppity-cloppity-clop-clop-clop, "'and the sun hotter, "'and him working harder up and down a patch of the road. "'Say, it was a treat to see my old man skip rope, too. "'He could wear it fast or lop it slow and fancy. "'Say, you ought to have seen Wops look at us "'sometimes when they'd come by, "'going into the town walking along "'with big white steers hauling the cart.' They sure looked as though they'd thought the old man was nuts. He'd start the rope whirring till they'd stop dead still and watch him, then give the steers a cluck and a poke with the goad and get going again. When I'd sit watching him working out in the hot sun, I sure felt fond of him. He sure was fond, and he'd done his work so hard, he'd finish up with a regular whirring that'd drive the sweat out on his face like water, and then sling the rope at the tree and come over and sit down with me, and leaned back against the tree with the towel and a sweater wrapped around his neck. Sure as hell keeping it down, Joe, he'd say, and lean back, and shut his eyes and breathe long and deep. It ain't like when you're a kid. Then he'd get up before he started to cool, and we'd jog back along to the stables. That's the way it was keeping down to weight. He was worried all the time. "'most jocks can just about ride off all they want to. "'A jock loses about a kilo every time he rides. "'But my old man was sort of dried out, "'and he couldn't keep down his kilos without all that running. "'I remember once at San Siro, "'Brigoli, a little wop that was riding for Buzoni, "'came out across the paddock going to the bar for something cool "'and flicking his boots with his whip after he just weighed in. "'And my old man had just weighed in, too,' and came out with the saddle under his arm, looking red-faced and tired and too big for his silks. And he stood there looking at young Rigoli standing up to the outdoors bar, cool and kid-looking, and I says, "'What's the matter, Dad?' "'Cause I thought maybe Rigoli had bumped him or something.' And he just looked at Rigoli and said, "Ah, oh, to hell with it,' and went on to the dressing room. "'Well, it would have been all right, maybe.' "'if we'd stayed in Milan and ridden at Milan and Torino. "'Cause if there ever were any easy courses, it was those two. "'Pianola, Joe,' my old man said, "'when he dismounted in the winning stall "'after what Wops thought was a hell of a steeplechase. "'I asked him once. "'This course rides itself. "'It's the pace you're going at "'that makes riding the jumps dangerous, Joe. "'We ain't going any pace here.' And they ain't any really bad jumps, either. But it's the pace, always, not the jumps, that makes the trouble. San Siro was the swellest course I'd ever seen, but the old man said it was a dog's life. Going back and forth between Mirafiore and San Siro, and riding just about every day in the week with a train ride every other night? Yeah. I was nuts about the horses, too. There's something about it when they come out and go up to the track to the post, sort of dancey and tight-looking with the jock keeping a tight hold on them and maybe easing off a little and letting them run a little going up. Then once they were at the barrier, it got me worse than anything, especially at San Siro with that big green infield and the mountain's way off and the fat wop started with his big whip and the jocks fiddling them around and then the barrier snapping up and that bell going off and them getting all off in a bunch and then commencing to string out. You know the way a bunch of skins gets off? If you're up in the stand with a pair of glasses, all you see is them plunging off, and then that bell goes off, and it seems like it rings for a thousand years, and then they come sweeping around the turn. There wasn't ever anything like it for me. But my old man said one day, in the dressing room, when he was getting into his street clothes, None of those things are horses, Joe. "'They'd kill that bunch of skates "'for their hides and hoofs up in Paris. "'That was the day he'd won the Premio Commercio "'with La Torna shooting her out of the field "'the last hundred meters "'like pulling a cork out of a bottle. "'It was right after the Premio Commercio "'that we pulled out and left Italy. "'My old man in Holbrook "'and a fat wop in a straw hat "'that kept wiping his face with a handkerchief "'were having an argument at the table "'in the Galleria. "'They were all talking French, and the two of them were after my old man about something. Finally, he didn't see anything anymore, but just sat there and looked at Holbrook, and the two of them kept after him, first one talking, and then the other, and the fat wop always butting in on Holbrook. Uh, "'You go out buy me a sportsman, will you, Joe?' my old man said, and handed me a couple of soldi without looking away from Holbrook. So I went out of the Galleria... And walked over in front of the scala and bought a paper, and came back and stood a little ways away because I didn't want to butt in. And my old man was sitting back in his chair looking down at his coffee and fooling with a spoon. And Holbrook and the big wop were standing, and the big wop was wiping his face and shaking his head. And I came up, and my old man acted just as though the two of them weren't standing there and said, Want nice, Joe? Holbrook looked down at my old man and said slow and careful. You son of a bitch. And he and the fat wop went out to the tables. My old man sat there and sort of smiled at me. But his face was white and he looked sick as hell. And I was scared and felt sick inside because I knew something had happened and I didn't see how anybody could call my old man a son of a bitch and get away with it. My old man opened up the sportsman and studied the handicaps for a while. And then he said, You gotta take a lot of things in this world, Joe. And three days later, we left Milan for good on the Turin train for Paris, after an auction sale out in front of Turner's stables of everything we could get into a trunk and a suitcase. We got into Paris early in the morning, in a long, dirty station the old man told me was the Gare de Lyon. Paris was an awful big town after Milan. Seems like in Milan, everybody's going somewhere, and all the trams run somewhere, and there ain't any sort of a mix-up. But Paris is all balled up, and they never do straighten it out. I got to like it, though, part of it anyway, and say, it's got the best racecourses in the world. Seems as though that were the thing that keeps it all going and about the only thing you can figure on is that every day the buses will be going out to whatever track they're running at, going right out through everything to the track. I never really got to know Paris well, because I just came in about once or twice a week with the old man from Maisons, and he always sat at the Café de la Paix on the upper side with the rest of the gang from Maisons. And I guess that's one of the busiest parts of the town. But say, it is funny that a big town like Paris wouldn't have a galleria isn't it? Well, we went out to live at the Maisons Lafitte, where just about everybody lives except the gang at Chantilly, with a Mrs. Myers that runs a boarding house. Maisons is about the swellest place to live I've ever seen in all my life. The town ain't so much, but there's a lake and a swell forest that we used to go off bumming in all day, a couple of us kids, and my old man made me a slingshot, and we got a lot of things with that "'but the best one was a magpie. "'Young Dick Atkinson shot a rabbit with it one day "'and we put it under a tree "'and we're all sitting around "'and Dick had some cigarettes "'and all of a sudden the rabbit jumped up "'and beat it into the brush "'and we chased it, "'but we couldn't find it. "'Geeze, we had fun at Maisons. "'Mrs. Myers used to give me lunch in the morning "'and I'd be gone all day. "'I learned to talk French quick. "'It's an easy language.' As soon as we got to Maisons, my old man wrote to Milan for his license, and he was pretty worried, till he came. He used to sit around the café de Paris in Maisons with the gang. There were lots of guys he'd known when he rode up at Paris, before the war, lived at Maisons, and there's a lot of time to sit around because the work around a racing stable, for the jocks, that is, is all cleaned up by 9 o'clock in the morning. They take the first batch of skins out to gallop them at 5.30 in the morning, and they work the second lot at 8 o'clock. That means getting up early all right and going to bed early too. If a jock's riding for somebody too, he can't go boozing around because the trainer always has an eye on him if he's a kid. And if he ain't a kid, he's always got an eye on himself. So mostly if a jock ain't working, he sits around the café de Paris with the gang and they can all sit around about two or three hours in front of some drink like a vermouth and a seltz. And they talk and tell stories and shoot pool. It's sort of like a club or the Galleria in Milan. Only it ain't really like the Galleria because there everybody's going by all the time and there's everybody around at the tables. Well, my old man got his license all right. They sent it through to him without a word and he wrote a couple of times. Amiens, upcountry and that sort of thing. But he didn't seem to get any engagement. Everybody liked him, and whenever I'd come into the cafe in the forenoon, I'd find somebody drinking with him, because my old man wasn't tight like most of those jockeys that have got the first dollar they made riding at the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904. That's what my old man would say when he'd kid George Burns, but it seemed like everybody steered clear of giving my old man any mounts. We went out to wherever they were running every day with the car from Maisons, and that was the most fun of all. I was glad when the horses came back from Deauville in the summer. Even though it meant no more bowmen in the woods, because then we'd ride to engine or Tremblay or St. Cloud and watch them from the trainers and jockeys stand. I sure learned about racing from going out with that gang, and the fun of it was going every day. I remember once out at St. Cloud. It was a big 200,000-franc race with seven entries and Kazar a big favorite. I went around to the paddock to see the horses with my old man and you never saw such horses. This Kesar is a great big yellow horse that looks like just nothing but run. I never saw such a horse. He was being led around the paddocks with his head down and when he went by me, I felt all hollow inside. He was so beautiful. There never was such a wonderful, lean, running built horse. And he went around the paddock putting his feet just so and quiet and careful and moving easy like he knew just what he had to do and not jerking and standing up on his legs and getting wild-eyed like you see some of these selling platers with a shot of dope in them. The crowd was so thick I couldn't see him again except just his legs going by and some yellow and my old man started out to the crowd and I followed him over to the jock's dressing room back in the trees and there was a big crowd around there too. But the man at the door in a derby nodded to my old man, and we got in. And everybody was sitting around and getting dressed and pulling shirts over their head and pulling boots on, and it all smelled hot and sweaty and linimenty, and outside was the crowd looking in. The old man went over and sat down beside George Gardner that was getting into his pants and said, What's the dope, George? Just an ordinary tone of voice, because there ain't any use him feeling around because George either can tell him or he can't tell him. He won't win, George says, very low, leaning over and buttoning the bottoms of his pants. Who will? My old man says, leaning over close so nobody can hear. Kirkcubbin, George says, and if he does, save me a couple of tickets. My old man says something in a regular voice to George, and George says, Don't ever bet on anything, I tell you. Kidding like, and we beat it out through all the crowd that was looking in over to the 100-franc mutual machine. But I knew something big was up, because George was Kzar's jockey. On the way he gets one of the yellow odds sheets with the starting prices on, and Kesar is only paying five for ten. Sufisidote is next at three to one, and fifth down the list this Kirkcubin at eight to one. My old man bets 5000 on Kercubin to win. "'and puts on a thousand to place, "'and we run around back of the grandstand "'to go up the stairs and get a place to watch the race. "'We were jammed in tight, "'and first a man in a long coat with a great tall hat "'and a whip folded up in his hand came out, "'and then one after another the horses, "'with the jocks up and a stable boy holding the bridle "'on each side walking along, followed the old guy. "'That big yellow horse, Kazar came first. "'He didn't look so big when you first looked at him, until you saw the length of his legs and the whole way he's built and the way he moves. Gosh, I never saw such a horse. George Gardner was riding him, and they moved along slow back of the old guy in the gray tall hat that walked along like he was the ringmaster in a circus. Back of Kazar, moving along smooth and yellow in the sun, was a good looking black with a nice head, with Tommy Archibald riding him. And after the black was a string of five more horses all moving along slow in a procession, past the grandstand and the passage. My old man said the black was Kercubin, and I took a good look at him, and he was a nice-looking horse all right, but nothing like Kazar. Everybody cheered Kazar when he went by, and he sure was one swell-looking horse. The procession of them went around on the other side, past the pelus, and then back up to the near end of the course, and the circus master had the stable boys turn them loose one after another so they could gallop by the stands on their way up to the post and let everybody have a good look at them. They weren't at the post hardly any time at all when the gong started, and you could see them way across the infield, all in a bunch, starting on the first swing like a lot of little toy horses. I was watching them through the glasses, and Khazar was running well back with one of the bays making the pace. They swept down and around and came pounding past, and Kazar was way back when they passed us, and this Kercubbin horse in front and going smooth. Gee, it's awful when they go by you, and then you have to watch them go further away and get smaller and smaller, and then all bunched up on the turns, and then come around towards end of the stretch, and you feel like swearing and goddamming worse and worse. Finally they made the last turn and came into the straightaway with this Kercubbin horse way out in front. Everybody was looking funny and saying Kesar in a sort of a sick way and then pounding nearer down the stretch. And then something came out of the pack right into my glasses like a horse-headed yellow streak and everybody began to yell Kesar as though they were crazy. Kesar came on faster than I'd ever seen anything in my life and pulled up on Kirkubin that was going fast as any black horse could go with the jock flogging the hell out of him with the gad and they were right dead neck and neck for a second. But Kazar seemed to be going about twice as fast with those great jumps and that head out. But it was while they were neck and neck that they passed the winning post, and when the numbers went up in the slots, the first one was two, and that meant Kirkubin had won. I felt all trembly and funny inside, and then we were all jammed in with the people going downstairs to stand in front of the board where they'd post what Kirkubin paid. "'Honest. Watching the race, I'd forgot how much my old man had bet on Kirkcubbin. "'I'd wanted Khazar to win so damn bad. "'But now it was all over. "'It was swell to know we had to win her.' "'Wasn't it a swell race, Dad?' I said to him. "'He looked at me sort of funny with his derby on the back of his head. "'George Gardner's a swell jockey, all right,' he said. "'It sure took a great jock to keep that Khazar horse from winning.' Of course, I knew it was funny all the time, but my old man saying that right out like that sure took the kick out of all of it for me, and I didn't get the real kick back again ever, even when they posted the numbers up on the board and the bill rang to pay off and we saw the curcubbin paid sixty-seven fifty for 10 All round people were saying, Poor Kesar! Poor Kesar! And I thought, I wish I were a jockey, could have rode him instead of that son of a bitch. And that was funny, thinking of George Gardner as a son of a bitch, because I'd always liked him, and besides, he'd given us the winner. But I guess that's what he is, all right. My old man had a big lot of money after that race, and he took to coming into Paris more often. If they raced at Tremblay, he'd have them drop him in town on their way back to Maisons, and he and I'd sit out in front of the Café de la Paix and watch the people go by. It's funny sitting there. There's streams of people going by, and all sorts of guys come up and want to sell you things, and I love to sit there with my old man. That was when we'd have the most fun. Guys would come by selling funny rabbits that jumped if you squeezed a bulb. They'd come up to us, and my old man would kid with them. He could talk French just like English, and all those kind of guys knew him because you could always tell a jockey, and then we always sat at the same table, and they got used to seeing us there. There were guys selling matrimonial papers and girls selling rubber eggs that when you squeezed them, a rooster came out of them. And one old, wormy-looking guy that went by with postcards of Paris, showing them to everybody. And, of course, nobody ever bought any. And then he'd come back and show the underside of the pack. And then they'd all be smutty postcards. And lots of people would dig down and buy them. Gee, I remember the funny people that used to go by. Girls around suppertime looking for somebody to take them out and eat and they'd speak to my old man, and he'd make some joke at them in French, and they'd pat me on the head and go on. Once there was an American woman sitting with her kid daughter at the next table to us, and they were both eating ices, and I kept looking at the girl, and she was awfully good looking, and I smiled at her, and she smiled at me, but that was all that ever came of it, because I looked for her mother and sister every day, and I made up ways that I was going to speak to her, and I wondered if I got to know her. "'if her mother would let me take her out to Auteuil or Tremblay. "'But I never saw either of them again. "'Anyway, I guess it wouldn't have been any good anyway, "'because looking back on it, "'I remember the way I thought out "'would be the best to speak to her was to say, "'Pardon me, but perhaps I can give you a winner at NGN today. "'And after all, maybe she would have thought I was a tout "'instead of really trying to give her a winner. "'We'd sit at the Café de la Paix, my old man and me, and we had a big drag with the waiter because my old man drank whiskey and it cost five francs, and that meant a good tip when the saucers were counted up. My old man was drinking more than I'd ever seen him, but he wasn't riding at all now, and besides, he said that whiskey kept his weight down, but I noticed he was putting it on all right, just the same. He'd busted away from his old gang out at Maisons and seemed to just like sitting around on the boulevard with me but he was dropping money every day at the track. He'd feel sort of doleful after the last race, if he'd lost on the day, until we'd get to our table, and he'd have his first whiskey, and then he'd be fine. He'd be reading the Paris Sport, he'd look over at me and say, Where's your girl, Joe? To kid me, on account I told him about the girl that day at the next table. And I'd get red, but I liked being kidded about her. It gave me a good feeling. Keep your eye peeled for her, Joe he'd say. She'll be back. He'd ask me questions about things. And some of the things I'd say, he'd laugh. And then he'd get started talking about things.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: About riding down in Egypt or at St. Moritz on the ice before my mother died. And about during the war when they had regular races down in the south of France without any purses. Or betting, or crowd or anything just to keep the breed up. Regular races with the jocks riding hell out of the horses. Gee, I could listen to my old man talk by the hour, especially when he'd had a couple or so drinks. He'd tell me about when he was a boy in Kentucky and going coon hunting and the old days in the States before everything went on the bum there. And he'd say, Joe, when we got a decent steak, you're going back there to the States so you can go to school. Why have I got to go back there to go to school when everything's on the bum there? I'd ask him. That's different, he'd say and get the waiter over and pay the pile of saucers, and we get a taxi to the Gare Saint-Lazare and get on the train out to Maisons. One day at Autille, after selling steeplechase, my old man bought in the winter for 30,000 francs. He had to bid a little to get him, but the stable let the horse go finally, and my old man had his permit and his colors in a week. Gee, I felt proud my old man was an owner. He'd fixed it up for stable space with Charles Drake, and cut out coming into Paris, and started his running and sweating out again, and him and I were the whole stable gang. Our horse's name was Guilford, he was Irish bred, and a nice sweet jumper. My old man figured that training him and riding him himself was a good investment. I was proud of everything, and I thought Guilford was as good a horse as Kesar. He was a good, solid jumper, a bay, with plenty of speed on the flat, if you ask him for it, and he was a nice-looking horse, too. Gee, I was fond of him. The first time he started with my old man up, he finished third in a 2,500-meter hurdle race, and when my old man got off him, all sweating and happy in the place stall, and went into way, I felt as proud of him as though it were the first race he'd ever placed in. You see, when a guy ain't been riding for a long time, you can't make yourself really believe that he's ever rode. The whole thing was different now, because down in Milan... Even big races never seemed to make any difference to my old man. If he won, he wasn't ever excited or anything. And now I was, so I couldn't hardly sleep the night before a race. And I knew my old man was excited too, even if he didn't show it. Riding for yourself makes an awful big difference. Second time Guilford and my old man started was a rainy Sunday at Autiel in the Prix du Marat, a 4,500-meter steeplechase. As soon as he'd gone out, I beat it up in the stand with the new glasses my old man had bought for me to watch them. They started way over at the far end of the course, and there was some trouble at the barrier. Something with goggle blinders on was making a great fuss and rearing around and busted the barrier once. But I could see my old man in our black jacket, with a white cross and a black cap, sitting up on Guilford and patting him with his hand. Then they were off in a jump and out of sight behind the trees and the gong going for dear life and the mutual wickets rattling down. Gosh, I was so excited. I was afraid to look at them. But I fixed the glasses on the place where they would come out back of the trees, and then out they came with the old black jacket going third, and they all sailing over the jump like birds. Then they went out of sight again, and then they came pounding out down the hill, all going nice and sweet and easy, and taking the fence smooth in a bunch, and moving away from all of us solid. Looked as though you could walk across on their backs, they were all so bunched and going so smooth. Then they bellied over the big double bullfinch, and something came down. I couldn't see who it was, but in a minute the horse was up and galloping free in the field, all bunched still, sweeping around the long left turn into the straightaway. They jumped the stone wall and came jammed down the stretch toward the big water jump right in front of the stands. I saw them coming and hollered at my old man as he went by and he was leading by about a length and riding way out and light as a monkey and they were racing for the water jump. They took off over the big hedge of the water jump in a pack and then there was a crash and two horses pulled sideways off of it and kept going and three others were piled up. I couldn't see my old man anywhere. One horse kneed himself up and the jock had hold of the bridle and mounted "'and went slamming on after the place money. "'The other horse was up, and away by himself, "'jerking his head and galloping with the bridle-rein hanging, "'and the jack staggered over to one side of the track against the fence. "'Then Guilford rolled over to one side off my old man "'and got up and started to run on three legs with his off-hoof dangling. "'And there was my old man laying there on the grass, "'flat out with his face up and blood all over the side of his head. I ran down the stand and bumped into a jam of people and got to the rail and a cop grabbed me and held me and two big stretcher bearers were going out after my old man and around on the other side of the course I saw three horses strung way out coming out of the trees and taking the jump. My old man was dead when they brought him in and while the doctor was listening to his heart with the thing plugged into his ears I heard a shot up the track that meant they'd killed Guilford. "'I lay down beside my old man "'when they carried the stretcher "'into the hospital room "'and hung on to the stretcher "'and cried and cried. "'And he looked so white and gone "'and so awfully dead "'and I couldn't help feeling "'that if my old man was dead "'maybe they didn't need to have shot Guilford. "'His hoof might have got well. "'I don't know. "'I love my old man so much.' Then a couple of guys came in and one of them patted me on the back and then went over and looked at my old man and then pulled a sheet up the cot and spread it over him. And the other was telephoning in French for them to send the ambulance to take him out to Maisons. And I couldn't stop crying. Crying and choking, sort of. And George Gardner came in and sat down beside me on the floor and put his arm around me and says, Come on, Joe, old boy. Get up. And we'll go out and wait for the ambulance. George and I went out to the gate. I was trying to stop bawling, and George wiped off my face with his handkerchief, and we were standing back a little ways while the crowd was going out of the gate, and a couple of guys stopped near us while we were waiting for the crowds to get through the gate, and one of them was counting a bunch of mutual tickets and said, Well, Butler got his all right. And the other guy said, I don't give a good goddamn if he did, the crook. He had it coming to him on the stuff he's pulled. "'I'll say he had,' said the other guy, and tore the bunch of tickets in, two. And then George Gardner looked at me to see if I'd heard. And I had all right. And he said, "'Don't you listen to what those bums said, Joe. Your old man was one swell guy. But I don't know. Seems like when they get started, they don't leave a guy in nothing.'" Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We hope you enjoyed this story. It really flows well. The descriptions of the surroundings and events were well presented, well written, and the ending was a shocker. For a first story, you have to admit, it was very, very good. Everyone, we're in dire need of new subscribers here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, as well as over at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries, to get us back up in the rankings. And that brings us new listeners. I'm asking that every one of you help us by subscribing to our show, if you haven't already, or helping a friend or family member to, dis- to subscribe to our show. It's free, whether you use Apple or Android. And when you're subscribed, it helps you keep up with new episodes. But it really helps us, because subscribers is the number one thing that Apple looks for when they determine the rankings. Reviews is number two. Competition in this industry is fierce with hundreds of new shows arriving every day, many with top production staffs and lots of money behind them to market. I'm just one guy wearing lots of hats and doing my best to provide great entertainment. Over the past four plus years, I've worked to improve the quality of my shows. Listen carefully to all of you, upgraded my equipment and steadily improved through hard work and attention to detail. Now is when I need your help. Going out and encouraging others to listen to us. If you can do this, we will all benefit. Thanks for being great fans, and thanks for all the sterling reviews you continue to send. And here are a few today. Five stars. Title 1001 Stories from Australia. This is one of the most professional podcasts I've ever heard. I fell in love with short stories as a young lad. Every week I'm like a one eyed cat in a fish shop just waiting for the next offering. This time, as an adult, I listen to each story two or three times, savoring each tale by such highly rated historical authors, being read by a professional without equal. Bless everyone involved in the production of 1001 Stories. And this one, A Great Find. I recently discovered this podcast and it's fast becoming my favorite. I look forward to listening to the stories on my way to work or as I take a morning or evening walk. It's a great way to become familiar or to remember some of the great classic short stories and authors throughout time. I'm especially enjoying the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, and anxiously await more of them to be added. That one from Showman000, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, great short stories, good selection, and well read. That from Bagpiper4, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, excellent, five stars, wonderful retelling of classics from the masters of the short story genre. My favorites are the twist endings of O. Henry and Saki. That from Barefoot Indie, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, Best Story Podcast, five stars. I've listened to a few story podcasts, and this one is the best by far. John has a voice that pulls you in and immerses you in the stories. Would highly recommend for anyone who needs something to listen to on a road trip or cleaning your house. It keeps your mind occupied and intrigued. That one from B. Loves Books. Apple Podcast Canada. And this one, five stars, great storytelling and family-friendly. Collection of popular authors and classic novels for the whole family. Keep up the good work. Greetings from the Philippines. Leflee via Apple Podcast Philippines. And this one, thank you, five stars. Great audio stories. I'm listening to it nearly every day. Continue, please. That one from Sasha Elisieva via Apple Podcast Ukraine. And this one, wonderful, five stars. Thanks for your wonderful storytelling from an American in France. That one from Rash Caliph R via Apple Podcasts, France. Thank you all so very, very, very much. We appreciate it. And we'll be back next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.